You're listening to Booth One alongside my Booth One partner, Roscoe. I'm Gary Zabinski, and you've tuned into the art of lively conversation and what's new in the arts and popular culture. Well, it's nearly the 4th of July, Roscoe, and summer is a busy time in the entertainment world, especially here in Chicago with, you know, there's festivals and there's outdoor theater and food fairs. There's the concert season going on. Do you, do you take advantage of all the things that Chicago has to offer in the summer, Roscoe? Every night is booth one. <laughs> From the carnivals to the rib fest to the street festivals. I prefer the outdoor theater with air conditioning. Yes. <laughs> that's, my, that's my caveat. Well, we're here in the air-conditioned uh, studios, and today we have a terrific guest. Chicago native and world-renowned author, the fabulous Stuart Dybeck is with us today. Welcome to Booth One, Stuart. Hi, thanks, Gary. You know, you're something of an institution in Chicago, and we have talked to several institutions here in Chicago, including Mark Hauser a few weeks ago, yes. uh, photographer Mark Hauser. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar with Stuart's work, let me just go through a little short bio of yours. Stuart is a second-generation Polish-American and raised in Chicago's little village in Pilsen neighborhoods in the 1950s. And he earned an MFA from the uh, Iowa Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa. He has an MA in literature from Loyola University. John Breslin, reviewing in the Washington Post, has said your work moves easily between the gritty reality of urban decay and a magical realm of lyricism and transcendence linked to music, art, and religion. We're going to get to a number of those points in a little bit. Uh, Stewart became the Distinguished Writer-in-Residence at Northwestern University, where you currently teach a course. Dybeck's uh, two collections of poems are Brass Knuckles, one of my favorite titles, and Streets in Their Own Ink. His fiction includes Children in Other Neighborhoods, The Coast of Chicago, I Sailed with Magellan, which is a novel in story form, Paper Lantern Love Stories, and Ecstatic Cahoots, 50 Short Stories, which is the most recent book of yours. And in 2007, you were awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, are you blushing yet? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I needed to give that background well, to, to all of our yeah. listeners, for right. sure. All right, let's get to the meat of the matter. Boxing. You use a lot of <laughs> boxing imagery in, in some of your stories, don't you, Stuart? Actually, I had a story in Playboy a couple of years ago set in uh, on the south side and it's set in the rain it's called Three Minutes a title which refers to my entire life investment in personally boxing <laughs> three so minutes was you've more tried than, it, you've tried it three for three minutes, minutes three minutes was more than enough I bring it up because it's not only part of the imagery in many of your stories or you refer to it but Muhammad Ali passed um, in recent weeks and I wonder if you had any thoughts about Muhammad Ali. He, you grew up in a particularly interesting time in the 60s and 70s here in Chicago. And was Ali an, uh, an icon for you? Well, I remember when he came back after he had required to give up his title for not going to Vietnam. That first fight, I watched it in a bar in Chicago, an African-American bar. And it was really an unforgettable experience, the power that uh, he had in that community. I mean, you hear about it, but if you could actually see it, it was really amazing. He was one of the first athletes I was aware of. There probably are a long history once you understand that category exists. That just on his sheer talent 
and accomplishment would have been a transcendent figure. But then he transcends that. And to transcend being a middling athlete is special enough. But when you're actually a ruling athlete, to actually transcend that is, I, it's hard to, the figure in our lifetime who could have done that was Jordan. He did not. I, it's not a knock against him, but that, that comparison kind of gives you an idea of exactly what Ali did. Who first influenced you to write? Is it just, is it something that's just in your DNA? Did you start writing from a very young age? I know that you decided to do it professionally when you were still a teenager. Well, um, I mean, just to play around with some of the words in your sentence. By all means. <laughs> I don't think I ever thought of doing it professionally because to grow up with an immigrant father who is working on the line, an international harvester in weather like we're having, no air conditioning, and doesn't want that for his son, wants to see that upward mobility. To find out that he's dropped out of pre-med to write, the father isn't saying, that's a great professional decision. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I kind of inhaled that and believed it. I, and so it, it really wasn't uh, anything uh, that had to do with a professional idea. I mean, I, we all have our dreams no matter what they are. But it, it was um, something that I kind of arrived at because I almost felt I didn't have a choice. And pre-med was a, a choice I had made. I mean, I can't say I was forced into it. I was uh, living in Little Village and probably maybe 12 years old. And uh, on 25th in Washington, I saw a girl get hit by a car. Maybe an 8-year-old, 9-year-old girl got hit by a car. And it knocked her in the path of an oncoming car in the other direction. And both the drivers were frozen at the wheel. Nobody else was on the scene. I ran over to her. And she was trying to get up. Her head was already the size of a watermelon. I, I knew that her skull had been fractured. And I didn't know what to do. It was so unnerving that at that moment I, I thought to myself, someday I'm going to be a doctor. So if this ever happens again, I won't feel like I'm feeling right now. So I really did go into pre-med. You know, I don't want to create the impression that I was somehow forced to do that. But by then, something else had kicked in. I leaving it at something else, I don't know what it was, where I just couldn't get writing out of my mind. And making that switch was a big deal for me at the time. What happened to the little girl? What's the rest of that? Oh, people gathering around, her trying to get up, me knowing that whatever else I don't know what to do, the one thing I do know what to do is not let this girl get up. She's got to lay there. Um, she hadn't gone into shock yet. And then suddenly, I mean, Gary knows these neighborhoods. I don't, right, don't really know your background, but they're little villages. They really mm -hmm. are little villages. And somehow everybody's there. And then her mother comes running out, screaming, my baby, my baby. Without knowing what hap happens yourself, you're suddenly not holding the girl down anymore. Somebody else has, has taken over. But it, it, was, it was a hugely powerful experience and that that do-gooder instinct I I think manifested itself in, in other professions I would end up professions is too fancy a word <laughs> I'd end up having 
but I did go into uh, college uh, thinking that's where I'd end up. You wrote a book of short stories called The Coast of Chicago. You and I became acquainted and we became friends sort of over that book. Right. Uh, we, uh, we worked together staging that at the Looking Glass Theater here in Chicago. You did not do the adaptation for the stage, but you were generous and kind enough to just give us pretty much carte blanche to do what we did. Are, are you interested in the art of playwriting? Yeah, I love it. I, <laughs> I, it's, it's, for me, remains something I go to to try to learn how to do it. Even if I can't learn to write a successful play, it teaches me so much about the art of dialogue, about how to turn dialogue into action. And um, one of the reasons that I wasn't poking my nose in to the coast of Chicago was I wanted to stand back and watch professionals such as yourself do their thing. I, I knew I was in good hands. I knew everybody. Boy, that phrase has been ruined. <laughs> I, knew, I knew everybody uh, Everybody connected with that production. Knew way more about what they were, were doing so far as theater than I did. And it was just a huge um, opportunity to, to learn from, from all you guys. We had a wonderful time doing it. Roscoe, you saw that production, right? I, I saw it several times. I saw the show three times a number of years ago. And uh, the last couple of days, I've been reading Coast of Chicago. So it was interesting. And recalling the imagery is, you know, the, the girl who takes the angel dust and they think that they can jump onto the moon and she jumps off of the building. And I remember the can imagery. Can fly off the roof, yeah, right. I remember the imagery of that, just the, the piece of fabric off of her dress. It took about five minutes to fall <laughs> to the floor. That was beautifully was, done. Yeah, it was that great. Really was, that yeah, we, we had a nice time doing that show. There's a lot of lot of great visual images. Are you are you working on creating something for the stage right now? Yeah, I, sort I, of in the background. I did a a thing in uh, there's a group in L.A. that you, uh, invites writers, and then they do dramatic readings of their work, and the actors are all, you know, really terrific actors who are going back to that word professional. Are, are professionally earning a, usually a pretty good living out there in L.A. And they just do this for, for free out of, the love of, out of the love of the art. So they, they read a bunch of stories, and the woman who uh, runs it arranged the stories exactly in a way that I had done earlier in a play we put together to be developed at Steppenwolf, which didn't make the cut at Steppenwolf, but it... It really reassured me that that there was something there. And then uh, I've been working on this other uh, play that begins as a monologue, you know, set in a bar. Sure. Woman, <laughs> fem- <laughs> Always the, all the good plays are. <laughs> a woman bartender. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Who, so it's who not lo- Huey. Who loves, mm-hmm. you know, who loves the races. Uh, the horse races. The horse races. As it goes on, hopefully the audience realizes... You know, I, I suppose at one point, you're, if you go to a theater, you come in knowing this isn't going to stay a monologue. But I wonder that effect where it looks like it's going to be a monologue, and then slowly it turns kind of into her unconscious, starts to populate, her memory starts to populate the stage, and it, it becomes a real theater. 
there's a phrase that often describes your work, uh, the ghosts of history and memory comes to mind. I was reading an article that you did for The Atlantic um, not too long ago, and uh, you said something to the effect of, for me, memory and recollection can just as well be non-ordinary experiences. Memory is so subjective to start out with. Do you take your memories of your childhood and growing up in Chicago or wherever on your travels. Uh, I know you've lived in the Caribbean for some years. Is that your starting place? Is memory your starting place? And it advances from there? Well, it frequently is. In autobiographical stories, it's inescapably so. Uh, Not everything I write is autobiographical. Sometimes my starting place is just an image. Sometimes I, I listen to a lot of music. And um, music is kind of the defining art for me, has always been. And sometimes I'll just put on the right piece, and it's as if I've got film music, and it's my job to write the film. In stories that, that come in that way, they don't really begin with memories. Frequently, they'll work around the memories. That is that um, there will be a, a series of associations, which is one thing that memory is very much about, just like dreams are, is that we frequently, in, in remembering, think associatively. We think narratively as well. And in, in fact, both, both those ways of thinking are ways of writing. So when somebody's writing a story, they're thinking narratively. First this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it creates the sense that there's cause and effect in the world, even if you don't really believe there is. If somebody's writing a poem, or something lyrical, they think associatively. So rhyme is associative. You, you know, if we remember a 10-minute Bob Dylan song, it's because probably we're remembering the rhymes. Images are associative. The reason that, that those two ways of thinking have power is that they enable us to remember. They're mnemonic. You know, one way or another, most writers are going to use one or the other or some combination of of, of those ways of thinking. Yeah. What, what, what music do you listen to? What is it that's inspiring to you? I think of it as anti-party move music. <laughs> okay. That is, if, if you had a, a rip-roaring party and you reached the point where it was time for everybody to go home and they weren't going home, I'd go into my collection of what I call writing music, slip on one of those discs, and within about five minutes, the room would be clear. <laughs> is this like break out the Billy Holiday or? <laughs> no, it's not Billy Holiday. Although I love Billy Holiday, it's it's more like Philip Glass. It's repetitive. It's moody. Probably a little bit on the dark. That would get me out the door. That it would. It, it <laughs> yeah. would indeed. But it kind of puts you in a trance. If you read about what Glass and the minimalists were after, they were looking for that kind of repetitive sense that a lot of non-Western music has. And they're, you know, they're integrating that into the kind of Western music and um, kind of hallucinogenic, trancey. Sometimes it works. I think Philip Glass wrote the score for the current production of The Crucible on Broadway. And it, it's scored like a movie, but it's, it's a play. Mm-hmm. And, and, and about halfway through the second act, it drove me up the wall because I was so aware of it. And I thought, why am... Why am I having to listen to this musical score throughout this entire play? That's irritating and making me want to want, making me want to leave Stuart Dybeck's theater right now. I would feel the same way about a ten-minute Bob Dylan song. 
But that's just me. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> Half this household loves Bob Dylan, the other doesn't. When you are writing about Chicago specifically, what other places fascinate you and give you energy? I, I know you've traveled the world quite a lot. Like, where do you like to take a vacation to kind of recharge yourself? I love islands. You love islands? Yeah. I think I just love being surrounded by water. <laughs> I go a lot to Sardinia in Italy, island like Corsica. I taught for two years in an island in the Caribbean, and I've been writing a lot about that lately. So those places all kind of sneak in. They're related to Chicago, I mean, in a way that, besides the fact that one of the streets I grew up next to was called Blue Island. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my first love of islands actually came from that diagonal street. And I just love the sound of the name of it, Blue Island Avenue. The other thing about uh, islands is that you're, yeah, there is that sense of isolation. There's, I, there's a magical quality to them that I, I kind of just kind of pick up on. Roscoe has once told us and our listeners that Living on an island in luxury, in the lap of luxury, would be your ideal place to either vacation or even just to live. Yeah, especially one of those man-made islands that we're reading about these days. Yeah. Living in a space pod in the middle of the ocean. And you love that because you're fond of swimming with sharks. I love swimming with sharks. We, we talk about our fears. I, I, Roscoe has mentioned it. I have a deathly, deathly fear of sharks. I believe there are sharks in Lake Michigan, yeah, he, as a matter of fact. He won't wade in Lake Michigan at North Avenue Beach because there might be a shark there. Well, they, they might be some sub- subterranean passageway to Lake Pontchartrain where there are, actually are the, we, pon- the Lake Pontchartrain shark. We have done a story on freshwater sharks swimming yeah. up the Mississippi River, yeah, they, and they're yeah. almost here. Those are, those are bull sharks, yeah. I, I've seen many of them in my... I'm a diver, and I spearfish, so... And you're not terrified of sharks? No, I, I think the huge fear for Lake Michigan would be to kind of be wading and to, as you walk down, to realize that your legs had turned into pillars of zebra mussels. <laughs> I think that's, that's, more, that's more, more of a reality than... Hey, that's true. Let's go back to theater for a minute, because um, I know that it's something that you love to view, Mm-hmm. And it's something that you do a lot in your in your free time. You go to a lot of off-loop theater here in Chicago. And I assume you go to theater all over whenever you're traveling. Uh, and you always find something enormously rewarding each time you do. Every time I run into you on the street, virtually, you tell us about a production that you just saw. Um, what, what well, com- I, I spare you the ones. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, the, the thing about Chicago theater that I love is that people take chances. And they're honest to God, real chances. And that means that there is a rate of failure. And I just kind of don't talk about those. You, you know, I, I go in knowing that that's a real possibility. But it, it never discourages me, just the opposite. You know, you, you're, I'm happy that I'm living in a city that makes it possible for people to take, to, to be edgy, to take, to take chances. Yeah. What, what have you, give us an example. What have you seen recently that you loved or inspired you over at the harris they did this one act opera it it's really um it really is in fact a monologue which is one of the reasons i I rushed over to see it and it's a woman on the phone saying goodbye to her lover and 
I, and I would put the Harris into that, even though it is not a storefront. I mean, one of the things that's wonderful about that theater is that they take chances. They, you'll see things there that you just won't see anywhere else. You know, I mean, the other thing about Chicago is that there's this kind of continuum that we're on here, which really involves improv. And there are a ton of overlaps. And then, of course, there's the what's at this point an institution, a mecca, and still really ongoing because of their wonderful uh, classes and the way they, in, it's, it's open to young people. I've had kids that I knew when they were kids who are now performing, uh, some students who are now performing at Second City. So that, that spirit, I think, is really kind of osmotically uh, expressed itself. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember when they were just starting out. I remember going to see Bill Murray when he was just on stage. Oh, oh. Uh, a friend said, you, you love that theater. You, you love Second City. There is somebody there who is so crazy now, you do not want to miss him. <laughs> and I mean, a young Bill Murray on the stage, before anybody knew who he was, was, <laughs> was a force. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure he was. I yeah. mean, a, lot of, a lot of youthful energy and yeah. uh, enhanced by other substances, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. But, but I mean, the imagination, the comic imagination was really, really impressive. Mm -hmm. We, we were talking earlier about athletes who have something immeasurable, like Rodman, or uh, who, who's the great guard with o o Oklahoma? Russell Westbrook. Westbrook, and talking about them having an engine. And it isn't something you can measure, like how fast they can run or how high they can jump, but it can take over a game. It can ch absolutely change a game. Murray had an engine. Something we like to do with our guests, Stuart, and we, I'm just going to insert this here. There's a game called Chat Pack, which is a bunch of questions that, I don't know, that I may not even think about asking you or you would not even think about telling us about. We like to do kind of a random drawing of them and see where this goes. Would you be up for playing with us? I thought that was just the container of Kleenex. <laughs> There's little questions written on that. There's different oh, ones. Oh, you have them in your hand. I see. <laughs> I'm going to let you pull one, and we'll All see right. what that has to say. Right, well, let's. What is the most lost you've ever been in a big city? I have a feeling that you probably have a great story about that. I do have a story about that. How's your sense of direction? Mine is excellent. How's your sense of direction? It, it is about as bad as I've ever seen anybody have a sense of direction. <laughs> and one of my great joys, I teach in Prague every summer. One of my saddest days in Prague was when I realized I couldn't get lost in Prague anymore. For about the first four or five years, I would just... First, I'd get lost and terrified. And then I would begin to realize how wonderful it was, because I couldn't get lost in Chicago how wonderful it was to absolutely to be able to be lost in a city and I reached a point in Prague where I couldn't get lost anymore and it was a very sad day. If I can riff on this question, the worst I've ever been lost is I was invited to having judged the contest to come and speak somewhere in central Michigan to a group of high school kids from all over the state who had entered a, a high school writing contest that the state had funded. And teachers from all over Michigan were arriving at this university, Central Michigan University, with their class. And there was supposed to be something like maybe a 1,000 high school kids there who had all entered this contest. 
and I was going to award the prizes, and I was going to supposed to read some of the stuff that won. I dressed up. I had a suit on. I got in a VW convertible that I owned at the time, little little um, bug convertible, orange. And I began to drive, and I took extra care. I looked at my route on a, on a road map. And I had a, a student, one of my best students, on the way, and I, I got there so early that I thought I'd stop and visit him, and I stopped at his house. He wasn't home. I had never told him I was coming. Got back on the highway. It was late May, just at the end of the high school school year. And as I drove with the top down and my radio on, going through the, these curving roads of woods on both sides, I began to think about morel mushrooms. <clears throat> okay. And I'm a mushroomer. And morel mushrooming is like maybe the Iditarod in Alaska. I finally couldn't stand it anymore. I was so early. I stopped on the side of the road, and I just wandered in a ways, thinking, well, maybe I'll just luck on to some. And I, I walked a little ways, walked, and was, of course, looking at the ground. And thought, nah, there are no morels here. It's too swampy over here. And I turned around, started walking back, <laughs> walked for a while, and realized I was lost. In the woods in Michigan? In my suit, with my wingtips. You, you, and you're sure you didn't find some mushrooms? And, there know, were no you know, mushrooms. Okay, okay, no, okay. I, I could do this on my own. And this is in the days before cell phones. No cell phone. And I began to yell, help, help. Nothing. So I just I began to crash around. And finally, 40, I did have a watch. I could see the time ticking away. <laughs> and about 45 minutes later, I finally could hear the highway. Separating me from the highway was a wetland. So suit and shoes and all, I waded into the wet, wetland. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sunk in up to my thighs. Finally got up on the highway, looked around the highway, had no idea what highway I was on. Cars were going by sporadically. I waved, and finally somebody who was willing to pick up a muddy, disheveled, thorn-scratched, probably poison ivy coming on human being pulled over and said, where are you going? And I said, I have no idea, but did you see an orange convertible? <laughs> he said, no, I didn't. I said, can I ride with you and see if we're going to see one? And we rode for a while, and there it was. I got there half an hour late. You can't believe what high school teachers <laughs> who have depend been depending on a kind of a half a free day because you're going to take over and talk. <laughs> How they greet you when you've come in scratched up muddy <laughs> that's my lost story but that didn't happen in a city brilliant you ever been lost in a city or somewhere roscoe yes in your own in your own living room <laughs> no I, I was with my family in the the one time my family went to paris together and we got lost and we my we're in a metro station and my father's trying to read the map and April in Paris came on over the sound system, which I found extremely amusing. And my father said, well, I'm glad you think it's so goddamn funny. <laughs> <laughs> We're lost in Paris, and we have no idea how to find our hotel. I got lost in the woods in Colorado. I, I was staying at my yoga retreat, and I got off the path, and suddenly I was in the middle of nowhere, 
in the middle of nowhere and I had no idea what to do. And then about a half hour later, I see a woman goes galumphing by and I go, help me, help. And she's like, oh, for the love of God, calm down. You're, you're a block from the camp. <laughs> Pull yourself together, young man. Wow. What about you? A couple of years ago, my wife and I were on a trip to Europe and we were in Spain. One of the cities we went to was Seville. And I decided that it would be fun to take a little adventure and walk to this restaurant that I'd heard about from our hotel. And Sevilla is a very old city. It's not built in grid form. It's built sort of circular and diagonally. And we found the restaurant with no problem on a very nice busy boulevard, and it was delicious. I think I had clams. And then we decided we'd walk back home, despite the fact that my wife's feet were killing her. I said, it's not far. Well, I chose the wrong street and realized that we were kind of walking in a big circle. And we walked and walked and walked. I said, we've got to be getting close. I know we're getting close. And suddenly we were back almost exactly where we had started from after like a half an hour. There's a river along uh, one side. It runs sort of right through the, the city itself. And I decided, well, let's get to the river because from the river I know where the hotel is. So we made it to the river and there's bridges across. It's sort of like, a little like Paris. And one of the great benefits of getting lost and finding this river and these bridges was that we stumbled upon a giant religious pageant ceremony that was coming down this boulevard. It was thousands and thousands of people holding candles while they carried the Virgin on a giant, well, I guess it was a giant platform with a, with a canopy. It'd be like just wandering through Rome and being lost and then suddenly coming upon the Pope in his mobile. With some doves. With some doves. It was fantastic. I love that story. I can see it in a film. You know, two people, and they'd have to have their own backstory. But they're lost, and they're walking around, and suddenly, just as you describe it, this big pageant comes. And, you know, maybe one says to the other, well, at least we got to see this. (laughs) And they come right up, and they say, Gary, this is for you. And they give you this big, huge statue, and then they all just vanish. And the two people are just standing there, and now they've got this big, blessed mother. (laughs) And the wife says, we only told them it was a room for two. (laughs) And the name of the film is Menage a Trois. The end. The end. (laughs) Philip Glass writes the score. And part of it is improvised (laughs) by Second City. We talked about professions earlier, and and you corrected my English and language and, and idea about being a professional writer. But if you were not a writer, if you could choose to do some other profession, what other profession would you like to do? Well, if we got to pick our, yeah. our, our art, mine would have been music. And uh, I took a lot of music lessons. I played in bands. It's just terrible. I still walk around hearing music that something in me is making up, but I could never play it. But aside from that, when I uh, went to Iowa, I was in the writer's workshop, but I had just come from teaching two years in the Caribbean. And I, I never really liked school very much, but... I like the kids a lot. 
And so when I went to Iowa, I, I actually was admitted into the Ph.D. program in education, but were going to allow me to do a creative that is a book stories or a novel for dissertation. At that point, I kind of thought I'd like to do both. I'd like someday to create in the inner city a school based on Montessori principles, but for working class and underprivileged kids. My favorite writer at that time was not, you know, I was studying with Vonnegut and Cheever, and I mean, I loved all their work, but the writer I was reading was John Dewey, who I, to this day, think is probably the greatest American writer of the 20th century so far as social issues. And, you know, what Dewey simply said is that in a democratic society, education remains the escalator up and out. And if you don't have good schools, everybody suffers because we, are, we all depend on one another's choices. So, you know, in this election, when I hear uh, the going phrases, the uninformed voter or, or low information voter, I don't know if you've heard that that phrase, but I mean that phrase speaks directly to what Dewey's talking about. Mm. What happened was that I never really finished that PhD. I, I didn't need it after a while because I started to publish, but I also realized that the energy it would take to move in that direction, uh, I, I just didn't have the energy to both write and to do that. If writing hadn't worked out, I had that to fall back on, and I, I think that life would have been easily as gratifying. What about you, Gary? What would you have done? Well, we've talked about this before. I think I'd like to be a wooden furniture maker, custom wooden furniture, cabinets, chairs, rockers. Makes perfect sense. You? At this point in life, I would move in with Kim Novak and help her run her animal sanctuary in California. That's fantastic. I think you'd be... Or Tippi Hudren. I think you'd be very, very, very successful (laughs) in that field. Stuart, let's play another chat pack. I want you to pull another card. What is the worst job you can imagine having? I remember thinking long, long ago when I was a kid going down California Avenue, what I would get on the bus and absolute mayhem was going on on that bus, and there would be the bus driver. And in those days, the bus driver would have to take your money, make change, drive in Chicago traffic and put up with these disrespectful animals getting on the bus. And I often thought, you know what, if there was a purgatory for me, it would be driving this bus. I guess mine would have to be something like shark fisherman. (laughs) Have you ever worked on a line, a production line? I didn't work on a production line, but I worked in a warehouse where we picked orders for a large grocery chain. It was tedious and hotter than hell in that warehouse. And I did that for three summers while I was going to college. Whatever they paid us, you couldn't pay me enough now to actually do that job. Well, one, one of my favorite subjects for, to write about is, is work. I think that's just a great, great subject. The worst job that I can imagine that I had was I worked on the production line. And, and I mean, and I had, you know, that kind of job you're talking about starting in high school where every summer you, you work. And I've, I had some wonderful ones, some crazy ones, washing helicopters <laughs> at, at Midway as a helicopter washer. But the worst job I had by far was working on a production line in an ice cream factory. It was almost all immigrants, 
mostly from Greece. And every day people would come near to fainting or would actually faint. <laughs> when I see somebody eating a popsicle now, I think you don't know what it means to work on the bar tank, the tank where you make the bars. You write about that in Coast of Chicago. Yeah. One, of, one of the characters, one of the, the women, her job is packing fudge sickles and popsicles yeah. all day long. Yeah. And at the end of the day, she can barely move her fingers. Move and, her fingers. and they're the color of whatever. Was, if it was cherry, her hands are red. If it was orange popsicles that day, her yeah. hands are orange. Jack London has these stories. Jack London is a great writer about work. You always think about him writing about Alaska, but he's got all these working class stories. And he has these stories where you wake up in the morning get achingly out of bed, go to the factory. And when you come home, you're so tired, you, you can eat and then you sleep. And that's your life. Mm-hmm. You wake up, you go to the factory and you, and you sleep. You wake up, you go to the factory and you sleep. During the summer, the, uh, the ice cream factory worked uh, overtime, as you can imagine. The day there, the shift there started at six and then you'd work overtime till six. I was, I was so tired and I worked on the bar tank line. The few times I could go to a bar that I was perky enough to go to a bar. I, I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm not what you would call a bulked out person. <laughs> I would get into arm wrestling contests <laughs> for money because your arms would, had become so powerful working on that bar tank line that nobody could beat you. Wow. That's some easy dough right there. You're like a hustler. Yeah. You could, I, yeah. It, lasted, you know, it would last for about five weeks after the job and Speaking of food, I know for a fact that you are an unapologetic foodie. I know that you love to eat, and you love to eat good food. I, I just came back from Florida, and, and I, it's a fishing trip, so, and we live entirely off what we catch. I go with a, a diving buddy, or, a writer named Tracy Kidder. We, we spearfish, and so it, it's been all cooking, and I... You spearfish down there, and then you, you, you subsist on what you can catch that day? Pretty much, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You must be very good. No, there's, the just, there's just a lot of fish. <laughs> <laughs> volume, nothing, volume, volume. Nothing else? Oh, no, well, you know, you, you, you're, you're doing exactly what is foodie religion right now, which is to eat what is local. You're eating all the fruits, and you're, you're preparing the fish with the yeah. fruits. And okay. The, I wanted to make sure you were getting the balanced diet. Yep, yep, okay. yep, yep. Nutrition is important to Roscoe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I d- didn't get to answer the last chat pack. May I, may I insert this about yeah. the, the worst job to have? Stuart was talking about production line jobs. I worked at the Del Monte canning plant in DeKalb, Illinois, three summers. And I believe this is still true, that normal... Laws for workers do not apply for in agricultural production. So people could work 12-hour shifts seven days a week because lima beans are only going to come in for three weeks. Yeah. And you have that short time period and you've got to get them all in. And the worst job in the world, the lima beans would be cooked and then they would come through on a conveyor belt and people would spend 12 hours a day running their hands. It was corn, peas, and lima beans. Running your hands, looking for twigs, or seeds, or anything that wasn't a lima bean. Sometimes mice, sometimes a part of a deer that got chopped up when they plowed the field. And it's steaming hot, and we get so hot in the warehouse that it would rain, because the the water would condense on the ceiling and then it would drip down. And people would get sick and get horribly dizzy. And the, the turnover was incredible. 
the other thing they did was they made creamed corn. Okay. And they'd have these gigantic vats of corn, and you'd see people with shovels shoveling cornstarch into the vat and stirring it. And, and two things resulted. Gee, I'm going to go back to college and finish because I don't want a job like this. And number two, I'm never eating creamed corn again for as long as I live. And, and I never have. Something about jobs, especially when, when you have them when you're young, they have a way of giving you messages about the rest of your life. And they have a way of educating you about the kind of lives people who don't have your options have lived. You know, I, I, I teach, and, I, and I, so I see a lot of stories written by kids, young people. And I don't see enough of the kinds of stories you just, you just told. Hmm. So it's interesting, when you go back to theater, you would think that that would be a, a, huge, a huge way to... I mean, you could just, just for staging the play with the machineries and all the different things. I can't think of too many theater pieces that are actually set right in the factory or... The pajama game comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, my, but, fa- my, my favorite is I, I just love that salesman story that Mammoth wrote. Glen uh, Gary, Glenn Ross? I, I just think that's a play of genius. And, I mean, he just so catches how we define ourselves by work, how limiting it is, how difficult it is. I, that's just a brilliant piece of, piece of writing. I, I love that thing. Let's talk about your fabulous fiction course at Northwestern University for a second. We've talked to some of your students, and they say being in your class was one of the great experiences of their lives. I have always wanted to take your class. Tell us a little bit about what your classes are like, and maybe describe an assignment that you give to your, your students. Yeah, I love that course. It teaches me something every year, and it's the students are wonderful. They come, and they... You know, in music, you say you play, which has kind of a different meaning than a child playing, and yet that's involved in it as well. These uh, young people come in class prepared to play. I wish I'd had anticipated that question because I I would have loved to have read a piece that a student of mine wrote. One of the things that's happening in that class is that every, almost every quarter, I've had at least one student write a publishable story, which is something I could not do. I could not write a publishable story in a 10-week class. She wrote two of them. I I would buy stock in her if I could. That's remarkable. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a class in which it it basically says, you can write anything you want in this class so long as it isn't realism. So here's the two stories she wrote. You asked me, uh, what are some exercises? The first exercise is is to to write a fairy tale or to do a takeoff on a fairy tale that we all know. her fairy tale was the fairy tale of uh, Snow White. And in, in her fairy tale begins, uh, a Snow White, who is now the queen, is burning all the stuff from her stepmother. She's having a big burning out in the courtyard. <laughs> and she goes up into the tower. She's getting rid of everything. And up in the tower, there's the mirror. And we're talking a story, three pages. So the first page is the, everything that's getting burned. Second page, top of the page, it's the mirror. Second page, I hit at the first read-through. As soon as that mirror starts pleading for its life, I knew I, I, knew I was in the hands of a hell of a writer. <laughs> and the mirror starts telling her why she can't destroy it. Why she can't. It sees that she's destroying everything. You can't destroy me. Why? You know, I can tell you things about being a queen. I don't need you. I can tell you <laughs> stuff about the, the, you know, the, the buffoon that you've got down there, the 
the, who's now the prince. Nah, I, you know, he's not a problem. I'll show you something. Let me show you something. And it shows her the scene with the woodsman when her stepmother has sent the woodsman to kill her. And it shows her that scene. And one of the beauties of the story is that when, when she's gone through the list of stuff being burned that the, her husband is watching, the husband sees this beautiful set of knives that he thinks, oh, geez, I wish you wouldn't burn that. There's the woodsman with that knife, and they've, he, he's kissed Snow White. So I don't think that's in the fairy tale, that the reason he lets her go, I think in the fairy tale it's just that she's, he has sympathy for mm -hmm. her. You know, there's this little suggestion that it's more than that. She takes the knife, and she cuts her heart out. And she takes it in her hand, and she hands it to the woodsman, and she says, here, take that back to the queen. Take that back to my stepmother. And the mirror says, a queen without a heart needs a mirror. And she takes the mirror and just smashes it. I mean, it's such wow. a beautiful... Wow. That's and and, and let, let, let me tell you, that, so that's an interesting story to retell. To read it, it is beautifully written. <laughs> so I, how could you not want to te teach a class like this? Well, her second story is a woman wakes up. She's living in this little, small, isolated town way in the backwoods of Wisconsin. She wakes up and she hears vandals, and she comes down you know, in the morning, and her walls are all smeared up. Go back to hell devil girl, and so on and so forth. And there's a knock at the door, and she opens the door, and there's her twin brother, all dressed in black, standing there. And, you know, she's still got all this writing on her wall, and he says, I, 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 I thought you were being a little town like this. She's clearly been hiding from him. And you find out, almost immediately, that they're twins, and that he's the Antichrist. What? <laughs> How does she come up with these? I can actually answer that question, kind of, but okay. I'll, I'll quickly finish. So, you know, the first thought I have is that he thinks he's the Antichrist, which is not the kind of twin brother you want. <laughs> and, and he says, you know, you're always high, you know, and that she's been moving from town to town because it gets known. And so he says, let's go for a walk. It's cold. It's winter. They're walking down a cold Wisconsin, little street, little town. They go by the little tiny library, and this little librarian comes out, and she takes one look at him, and she runs over and throws herself down and starts to worship him. <laughs> and suddenly you realize that the out that you thought the story had, that it's only in his own mind he's the Antichrist. And the story ends, the vandals come back. Only he's there. I won't tell you what happens, but... That one just got accepted for publication at a, at a full-scale, you know, at a terrific literary magazine. So, wow. One, so what happens? I, when I came into the class, the students I had mostly came from middle class and upper middle class, and they went to good schools. And I realized that probably unlike all of us sitting here, I, I know for sure, Gary, I, I just don't know you well enough. To, to, to know what your childhood was like. But I think we all leave, lived free-range childhoods. Because, I mean, the, the, the students I teach, in the womb, they're listening to Mozart. They went to preschools. Their parents went to every event, soccer, Little League, whatever. And they just were used to being coached, and they wanted to be coached in a way I really did not want to be coached. 
And, you know, I, at, at some point I realized, well, there isn't just one way to teach. If that's what they want, all right, then I'll make up some exercises. So I kind of made these exercises up under duress. And, and so what's happened in the class is that I've kind of had to feel my way into teaching it. The way I felt my way into teaching it is what works and what doesn't. Everything that works is due to them. You know, it's like managing a baseball team. <laughs> if you don't have good players, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, in other words, you try to do things not to get in the way. So I created these, these kinds of exercises. They write these exercises, and then they produce these pieces that are so full of imagination and take so many ch crazy chances. So it's, it's been great. It's, it's really been a, a, a joy. Yeah. But with this, this woman who came up with this fantastic plot line, just, just to occur to her? It had been something that she had been thinking well, about? Well, no. Well, you, probably. The class is self-selecting in that the kids who are going to sign up with a class description like that already have got to have a kind of a leaning in that direction. I talked earlier about a lot of stories beginning with an image. That is almost an imperative in this class. Okay. And, and that's one of the things that we talk about, and we read a lot of stories that use that mechanism, where they'll start with an object. So in the woman's story about Snow White, the story's titled Mirror. One of the things that it took teaching the class a little while to realize is that, as in a love story, if you had Jack and Jill or Jack and Jack or Jill and Jill, it doesn't matter. Say it was a play. Simplest thing, two, two characters sitting on the park bench. A man and a woman in this case. Let's say that the man is dressed in a sailor outfit and the woman is a kind of a bag lady. She's sitting there feeding the pigeons, maybe. He sits down. He's wearing a sailor suit. They turn and look at each other. You know that they've got to talk. You've, they've got to say something. And if they say something lame like, nice day, huh? Well, I'm not particularly fond of this time of spring, but, you know, oh, give me a break. <laughs> but, it, but, if, but if he turns to her and the first thing out of his mouth, you know, I've... I've always found older women attractive. <laughs> now we're in it. And if she looks at him and says, and I've always liked little boys in sailor suits. Now we've got two lines of dialogue and we're in it. So the thing that happens in the classes, you can have that because you can have love stories and fabulism. But the huge relationship there that has to be there is between the image and the character. So if it's a mirror, that mirror has to be addressed in the same way as if it was a love story that would, would, would have that dramatic relationship. If it's a vampire, it's got to bite you, or you've got to drive a stake in its heart. If it's a time machine, you've got to get in there, and you have to move that dial and see where it takes you. But it's that basic notion. And so they have to come up with this what I call a magic object or a magic portal. That's the main exercise of the class. And the thing is that the image, like Moby Dick, in the greatest American novel maybe ever written, then becomes narrative. An image in its character is poetic, it's, it's associative, it's metaphorical. So if I put a mirror on top of the story, or I put a malted milk, or I put a bottle of wine, whatever I put up on the top is my first metaphor. So in other words, you're starting in a metaphorical world. But the beauty of the story is that the metaphor becomes narrative. That is, you define it 
by telling a story about it. So you still have the poetic power of it. A magic lantern, you have to rub it. A magic carpet, you have to unroll it and get on it. You're always looking for where is it going to take you. I mean, that's the whole point of the narrative. If you get on a magic carpet, where am I going? Am I getting a time machine? If a vampire bites me, what happens to me, et cetera, et cetera. There's only one place it's going to take you. And the place it's going to take you is to one of the greatest places that a story can ever take you, transformation. It is so different if you walked into a class and say, hi, guys, today we're going to write a story about transformation. <laughs> but if you take them there and you start associating that class with, when I go into that class, we're, we're in this different world. We're creating different worlds. This is where it's going to take me. I'm going to have transformation at the end of the story, which is where Kafka goes, which is where Borges goes, which is where Marquez, Gabriel Garcia Marquez goes, Idolo Calvino. I mean, all these great writers, Shakespeare at the end of, you know, all his fantasy plays. I mean, my favorite Shakespeare play is the, the last one, the one with Prospero. The Tempest. The, I love The Tempest. It breaks my heart. The saddest thing for me in all of Shakespeare is not Lear making the wrong decision and being left by his daughters, not Hamlet, which is unbelievably sad. It's when Prospero says goodbye to his spirits and releases Ariel. So you could feel Shakespeare saying goodbye to his spirits, goodbye to all his power. Well, I feel I've gotten a small taste of what your class is all about and a <laughs> short lesson in writing I, for dummies because yes. that's what I am. How about you, Roscoe? I, yeah, it was thrilling. I'm, I'm, I think we should sign up. I can't wait to have you back, Stuart, to read some of your students' Well, next works. time I come back, maybe I'll bring a student with me. Uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, you've been nothing but generous and open-hearted during this whole conversation we've been having. I really, really, really appreciate your time and your candor. You'll come back and see us another time? Yeah, yeah, we're old friends, aren't we? Of course. <laughs> right. You're welcome anytime. All right. Come over, we'll play pinball, and then we'll record some stuff. All right. We're going to wrap up this episode of Booth One with an unusual kiss of death segment today. This from the New York Times back in 2010. And though it's not recent, it is beautifully written by Dennis Havisi and pertains to some of the topics and themes we've been talking about with Stuart Dybeck today, particularly storytelling, images, and imagination. Here's the story of Shirley Bell Cole, who died in 2010 at the age of 89. At a time when so many people could not spare a dime for a movie ticket, hundreds of thousands of youngsters hovered around big, boxy, depression-era radios in their living rooms, entranced by scripted voices and sound effects that conjured images of adventurous heroes in faraway places, not unlike podcast storytellers today. There was Tarzan, Jack Armstrong, and Dick Tracy, and there was the spunky, curly-haired Little Orphan Annie who in her high-pitched voice exclaimed, Leapin' lizards! at scintillating twists in the plot. In real life, the primary radio voice of the red-haired Annie was Shirley Bell, a brown-haired girl from the south side of Chicago. She got the part when she was 10 years old and, managing to maintain that bubbly preteen voice, played Annie until she was 20. Orphan Annie was like the keystone of after-school radio during the Depression. It, it meant a lot to kids because she would save the day. She would come to the rescue. At Christmas time in those days, some kids were happy to get two pennies. She was a real role model and would embark on adventures that little girls 10 and 12 years old would never dream of, a little bit like an early Dora the Explorer. 
Annie was the adopted daughter of Oliver Warbucks, known as Daddy Warbucks, the cue ball headed, tuxedoed capitalist who took his girl and her dog, Sandy, on journeys abroad. Reading scripts from behind the microphone, Little Miss Bell would take listeners on treacherous adventures, often to exotic places. Annie was captured by pirates in the South Pacific, for instance. Or off the coast of Africa, she eluded headhunters by fashioning masks of herself and propping them in every porthole of Daddy Warbucks's yacht. When Daddy Warbucks was off on his own, Annie stayed at a farm in Simmons Corners with Mr. and Mrs. Silo. In town, she would trail bank robbers and turn them into the police. When one of the stories was that Mr. and Mrs. Silo were going to lose their farm, listeners started sending money. When Annie solved a mystery with a secret decoder badge, thousands of listeners sent in two inner seals from jars of Ovaltine in exchange for their own decoder rings. Back then, that was one way sponsors rated shows. The 15-minute episodes were first broadcast on WGN in Chicago in 1930. Within a year, NBC was broadcasting it nationally. Shirley Adrian Bell, who, by the way, hated the taste of Ovaltine, was born in Chicago in 1920. Her father left the family when she was a toddler. Her mother, Irene, was the consummate stage mother, apparently a real Mama Rose type. At 10, she was the pick of the crop when hundreds of girls auditioned for the Annie role. Five afternoons a week, she took the trolley to the radio station for the live broadcast. For Shirley's mother and for relatives in nearby buildings, it was a lifesaver. She was the only one working, and she earned all the money for five immigrant Jewish families. In 1931, for instance, when a Pontiac sold for $600, Shirley earned $4,160. In 1937, she earned a whopping $7,500. In 1940, when Ovaltine dropped its sponsorship of Annie, Shirley Bell's acting career ended. Throughout her life, Mrs. Cole kept the curly red wig she wore for publicity appearances more than 70 years ago. She could always slip into that high-pitched voice, her daughter said, and sing the show's opening song, which goes like this. Who's that little chatterbox? The one with the pretty auburn locks? Whom do you see? It's little orphan Annie. Shirley Bell Cole, the voice of little orphan Annie, Our plug for the week, Roscoe and I will be appearing live at the free Food for Thought podcast pavilion at the Taste of Chicago Festival on Saturday, July 9th from 2.30 to 3.30 when our special guest will be restaurant proprietor extraordinaire Billy Lawless of the Gage, Acanto, the Dawson, and the Beacon Tavern. If you're in the Grand Park area, we'd love to have you stop by for stories and conversation with this grandmaster of the Chicago restaurant scene. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Review us on iTunes if you can. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com and get yourself a free guide to creating your own Booth One experiences by signing up to our mailing list. And keep listening. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski and Roscoe saying so long until next time. Music.